All right, if I can have everybody to their seats. If I can get everyone to their seats. If I can get everybody to their seats, please. Thank you. Again, if you are a dad, make sure you see Michael, myself. Got a little something for you. You will appreciate it. And if you don't, you can sell it. Make it a white elephant gift or something. You can do any of those. Happy Father's Day. It's a beautiful day today. Yes, it was hot yesterday. It was hot. It's Friday. Friday, it was, it was hot. Yesterday and, and today, it seems like it's going to be pretty good. So I'm, I'm feeling a little hopeful. Got my Washington football team colors on. Refuse to call them the commanders until we command a couple of victories. But for right now, for right now, felt like being festive. If you are not a, if you are a Dallas fan here, there's actually a church up the street that is looking for New members, you can make your way there. We understand. We, I'm joking, sort of. All right, we're going to continue. We're not doing a Father's Day message per se, but as we know, every day is Father's Day when you're a Christian because we have a relationship with the Father who sent his son. So on one level, while we're grateful for the cultural acknowledgement of the act or the role of being a dad, ultimately, whether you're a dad or not, Father's Day is going to be something that we spend eternity doing because we're going to be grateful to the father of a son and his son. So we don't always feel the need to address the cultural sort of acknowledgement of things, even though we do have, we want to acknowledge it. Today, we're going to continue in what I think is Romans, one of its most important chapters, and I would say as a result of if you look at the cultural framework of what's happening in our society, including in the church, I think this particular chapter is probably one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible itself. And you'll see why in, in hopefully in just a minute. Now, to understand Romans 14, we have to remember something. You know, when we preach every week, we pick up certain segment of scripture and we try to explain it to the best of our ability and we save the next portion for next week. But the scripture wasn't written in that way. So when, when the author was writing it, whether it's Paul or someone else, they're writing it with the understanding of creating a larger argument. And even when he shifts to a different theme, he's making a larger point or building off of what he said previously. So Romans 14 is not an isolated chapter, but it is part of a continuum that Paul is trying to communicate to that church and by way of this being the word of God to this church. Now, there were two main points that Mike taught last week. Wonderful sermon. Two main points that Mike taught last week that you have to have in your mind to understand Romans 14. There are two main points. One was Romans 13, 10. And it says this. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. You have to remember that as we talk about what we're going to talk about in Romans 14. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. It's the fulfillment of the law. There is a responsibility and the necessity of being loving towards people, particularly those who believe in Jesus. You have to remember that. The other thing you have to remember is verse 14 of Romans 13. The last verse of that chapter where Mike wonderfully explained what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And to make no provision for the flesh. So as Paul is ending Romans 13, beginning 
to talk about what he's going to talk about in Romans 14. He wants the people who take his word seriously to remember, put on the Lord Jesus. In other words, me imitate Jesus. That's what it means to put on the Lord Jesus. Be like him. Put, put on the Lord Jesus. Be like him. Imitate Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Jesus constantly denied himself, constantly laid down even his rights in one sense as God. Philippians 2, 5, 4, 5 through 11 tells us, for he did not count being equal to God something worth holding on to. So when he became a human being, it wasn't just to become a human being. It was to say, all right, I'm not going to allow myself the full expression of, of being God because I need to also be a human being. You all have heard me say this before. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is when it says Jesus marveled at their lack of faith. I think in those moments, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. He was 40 something years old, gives them sight. And then people still don't believe in him. And it said Jesus was amazed. He marveled at their lack of faith. Translation. Jesus was like, hold on, fam. I just gave a man sight that was born blind. And you still don't believe? Wow. You people are really deceived. <laughs> he had to experience that humanity, that shock of like, because we experience that when things seem so obvious. How could you not see this? How could you not believe this to be true about the Lord when you look at the world that we live in? Jesus marveled at their lack of faith because he, he, he decided to not use his, the fullness of him being God when he was in human form. This is what we're supposed to be like, to imitate the Lord and to love our neighbors. Now we transition to Romans 14. And here is a fundamental application of what that looks like. And I would say, as I said in a few moments ago, right now with where we are as a culture, I don't think there's a more important passage than this one in terms of diagnosing what the main problem is in and out of the church. Let me prove it. Beginning in verse 1, reading from the CSB translation, and I quote, Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one is weak. One who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls. And he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, depending on how you relate to the broader culture, you might not see this as a serious issue. If you are largely one who is removed from broader relationships through social media and you're kind of sort of 
in this community with your family and maybe close friends, you, you'll see this pop up here and there, but, but largely you won't see this as significant unless you're more immersed in the broader church culture. So this message, while it is applicable for all of us, depending on how you're processing the culture we live in, even if this isn't your experience, this is happening and always, whatever happens out there slowly makes its way to affecting us here. Now, if you are someone who is engaged in the social media world, Facebook community church, Twitter Baptist, then you will see this as a serious problem. And I would say, for me, as someone who is out there in these arenas, I think this chapter has been ripped out of the Bible in the lives of many believers. You know, Thomas Jefferson has a Bible, right? Where he, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, and they have this Bible. You can look at this Bible. Thomas Jefferson went through the Bible and ripped out all the parts of it that he didn't like and then formulated it as a real Bible. I think you can buy that bad boy online. And it has most of the moral commands out of the Bible. So whoever, whatever Bible he was preaching from or getting taught from was not the real Bible. He is the wonderful analogy of how I think many good-intentioned believers have responded to what's happening in our day and age. We rip out the parts of the Bible that we don't feel like applying or that we don't think are relevant. And we find ourselves in the predicament that we're in. Romans 14 gives biblical justification for the age-old custom of agreeing to disagree. I'm old enough to remember when you could just agree to disagree. There was no such thing as cancel culture. You just agree to disagree. I mean, there are times you've been to conversations like, all right, then we just agree to disagree. What you trying to get? What are you trying to eat? It was just like we just agree to disagree. Like it's not, there's no problems. What's the problem? Now, if you would disagree with somebody. Or if someone puts something in the social media that you, you got to explain why they're wrong. You need to tell them that they're wrong. You need to make them submit to your understanding of the culture or the world or whatever it is. And it's just like, well, I just disagree with you. And this is biblical justification to do so. So here's how this, these 12 verses are kind of structured. We get a command. We get a command. And then Paul gives us two circumstances two circumstances in which we can apply the command, and then he gives some correction. So you get a command, two circumstances, and then he gives some correction. So let's start with the command, verse 1. Here's what he says. Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. So this is a twofold command. So welcome people who are weak in faith and don't argue over disputed matters. So what does he mean by weak in faith? What does he mean by welcome people who are weak in faith? Well, if you look at the context of what he's talking about, and as we look at the circumstances, and he says don't argue over disputed matters, then a person who's weak in faith is someone who is overly conscientious about matters that are not necessarily regulated by Christian revelation. This is someone who may be sensitive to things that the Bible doesn't necessarily command. They may be passionate or really care about something that is more an application of the Scripture, but not something that all Christians have to do. So he says they're weak in faith. They're sensitive, maybe overly sensitive about their opinions or reasonings, their application of Scripture, but it's not necessarily something that every Christian has to do. You and I, we may not even like or agree with their issues. We may disagree, but they're not biblically defined. These aren't, these aren't biblical clarity. These are things that, okay, I'm doing this because I'm applying Scripture. Okay, cool. But they're overly sensitive about it, very conscientious. In this context, this is what it means to be weak in faith. You just may lack the grace to realize this isn't that serious. It's important to you. That's fine. 
but it doesn't have to be something that's important to everyone who believes in Jesus. This is what it means in this context to be weak in faith. And he says this, but don't argue about disputed matters. If we take the two words in the original language in the Greek, if we take those two separate words and put them in the way that he describes them, disputable matters sounds like he's saying don't argue over things that other people argue about. So dispute is to argue, to fight. He's saying don't argue over matters that other people fight about. Don't argue with what they argue about. Now, in the context of the sentence, don't argue with people who are weak in the faith about things that are important to them. It's a disputable matter. You know this. It's a disputable matter. Don't argue with it. But in the context of this passage, he's also saying that not only are these things not clearly commanded in Scripture, these may be matters that have been reinterpreted through Jesus. You know, when Jesus came, most of his teaching was he'd say something like this. You have heard it was said, do not murder. But I say, and then he expounds on what it means. So these could be matters that are reinterpreted through Jesus. So, oh, okay, I may have a better understanding of the gospel. I may understand these things more than this person. And so they're reacting to these things. And no, that now that Jesus has come, we process this differently. This happens a lot. In fact, I would say uh, the American church is split in multitude of denominations because we just have different ways that we process these things. They're not disputable matters. They're disputable matters. Infant baptism. Uh, we don't believe in baptizing babies here, but I have wonderful friends who are Presbyterian that do it. I don't think they're going to hell because they baptize babies, and hopefully they don't think I'm going to hell because we don't. That would be a wild reason to go to hell. Like, well, you didn't baptize babies. It's like, dag, Lord. We didn't baptize babies, Lord. Like, I, it wasn't clear to me. Like, I didn't. <laughs> you imagine that'd be crazy. I'm glad Lord's more gracious than that. These are personal applications from Scripture. Let me give you a, a common, a, a practical example from just a couple days ago, two days ago. So on Facebook Baptist Church, Twitter Baptist Church, there was this report that Buzz Lightyear, the new movie, has a same-sex kiss in it. And then it's a cartoon, and it was a same-sex kiss in the movie. And there was this telling everyone, you're not a, people say you're not a Christian if you go support this, you support this movie. You're not a Christian if you go do this. It's like, okay. So I'd be curious to know, because I think most of us have watched things that are worse than two cartoon characters kissing. <laughs> Some of these guys I know were, were, were tweeting about how much they love Game of Thrones. Right, 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 right. So a cartoon kiss isn't a problem. <laughs> but gratuitous sex with a brother and sister is okay. What an amazing show, Game of Thrones. <laughs> so all of a sudden now, your conscience is imposed on if you go see a movie instead of you having the wisdom to explain to your kids what's happening, yeah. like every good parent should do. Yeah. That's a personal conviction. Fine, don't go see it. If I don't go see it, it's not going to be because someone told me I'm not a if I do see it. Right. <laughs> Standing before the Lord, Curtis, you went to see Buzz Lightyear. So, <laughs> like, dad, like, you know. <laughs> Here's why this is important. Here's why this is important because there are differences in maturity. There are differences in maturity. Everyone in this room is not mature in the same way. You know, Jesus in Mark 4 tells a parable of the sower, right? And at the end, he, he gives four particular ways that the seed, the truth of the gospel, was presented to people. And the devil took one of them, snatched it away, he used birds to... And, the, and, and he has one landed on a rock and it sprouted up and seemed like it was really committed. But then mm -hmm. it withered away when trouble became because of the word. 
Another was choked out by the thorns and thistles by people who were too worried about the cares of this life, the riches and all those things. And he said, one seed landed in good soil when it bore fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, Jesus is giving a parable, right? So it's, a, it's sort of a, an analogy to make a point, but I take what Jesus says literally in terms of he knows what numbers he's using and the purpose of it. And when he says that some bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold, he means that there's going to be differing levels of maturity among people who have accepted and believed the gospel. Okay. There are differing levels of maturity. And we have to understand that. So here's a command. We accept, we welcome, we receive, even as a guest, people that see things differently than us. They may have different convictions, and we don't fight over those differences. We may talk about them. We could dialogue. But we're not arguing over these disputable matters because these aren't things the Bible clearly says. You know, if you're arguing over do not lie, <laughs> that's kind of clear. But if you say, well, I don't go to movies because Romans 12:1 says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be trans... I'm still looking for the word movie in Greek. <laughs> Like Romans 12 doesn't say that, but if that's how you're going to apply it, then apply it that way. But don't impose that on everyone else because they're different consciousnesses that we're talking about. And if God is okay with that, then we have to be. This is a huge problem in the church. This is the way the culture interacts with each other. You did what? Here's how this connects to putting on Jesus Christ and imitating Jesus. Here's the connection to Romans 13, 14. This is how it connects. Excuse me. Sorry for those of you who sounded louder too on, on watching online. Here's how this connects. We imitate Jesus because compared to him, every single one of us is weak in faith. Compared to Jesus, every, the most maturest person in this room is weak in faith compared to Jesus. Every person is. And what did he do? He welcomed. He said, come to me all who are heavy laden and burdened and I will give you rest. He welcomed everyone. He would tell people that weren't Jews, your faith has saved you. He told the Roman centurion, he said to the Roman centurion, he said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. This dude said, look, you don't even got to come to my house. I understand. I, I believe you. If you just say that they're healed, I believe that. And Jesus says, man, I can't find this type of faith around people who've been waiting for me. And then here this centurion says, go, your servant is made well. He goes back to the house and finds out that he got well the moment that Jesus told him that. He welcomed everyone who was weak in faith. And no matter how mature you and I think we are compared to Jesus, we're weak in faith. And he said, I welcome you. Come on in. So he says to imitate me, do the same. Do the same. Welcome people who are different than you, who think differently, who may apply scripture differently than you. Welcome these people. Why? Because I welcomed you. You wouldn't be here if I didn't welcome you. And other people won't be here unless you welcome them. So that's the, that's the command. Here's the circumstance, the first one, which I think is a, the first disputed matter. Right? So verse 2, verse 2 through 4, here's the circumstance, the disputed matter that he, he brings up after he gives the command. Here it is, verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. So there's the disputed matter. One eats only vegetables, and one eats anything. So the vegan <laughs> versus me. <laughs> Y'all too? All of us, right? Should we sell meat eaters when you say, what's at stake? We be talking about sides. Now, this may seem trivial to us, okay, because we don't have this issue. But to these people, this was a big deal. What the Jews ate and how they thought about eating was a big deal to them. 
For us, it sounds like a couple of foodies fighting over what restaurant to go to. So we wouldn't, we'd see this and read past it, but to them, this was a real issue. This was a theological issue. This was an issue of personal identity that Paul says this is a disputed matter. Let me prove this to you. In Daniel 1, remember Daniel was taken into captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and them in 586 B.C. And they're all, he took all, all of Judah, whether you were good, whatever, you were being judged by God for outward rejection of the Lord. Right? In 722 B.C., the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, which is considered Israel. Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken in 100 and something years later. And here's what it says in Daniel verse 1, chapter 1, verses 8 through 16, just to show you the significance of food. You, you'll remember this in a moment. Beginning in verse 8, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with, with the king's food or with, or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. See that language? He didn't want to defile himself. God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch, yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigns your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, please let your servants, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the, so the guard continued to remove their food and wine. They were to drink and gave them vegetables. So Chris and Donnie, we lost. We need to eat more vegetables. This was important to them. They don't want to defile themselves for the Jews like these vegetables who are for real. I've seen parents use this to threaten their kids. Look, in the Bible, they eat their vegetables. Look at the kindness that God shows them when you eat your vegetables. I just, I remember telling my mom, well, then I guess I'm just not going to make it to heaven because these lima beans, these lima beans and peas are just not going in. They're not going to make it. This tomato is not going to make it. Old Testament, New Testament, in Acts chapter 10. Beginning in verse 9, the next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, the second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. Now, that was to help Peter understand that the Gentiles are now accepted by God because he was going to Pete, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, to preach the gospel. But Peter's concern, <laughs> this is what I love, this is what, when these types of stories help us see two things about the Lord and about his people. The first is, Peter was like, no, Lord. It wasn't like he didn't know who it was talking. He said, it said a voice came in, and Peter knew it was the Lord. He was like, no, Lord, I'm not eating that. This is the Lord. You're watching a sheet come down covering the whole earth. If you and I saw that, we'd have a cardiac arrest. This this sheet comes down, and, and, and it says, go, get up, kill, and eat. Peter says, no, Lord, I'm not listening to what you just said. And the Lord was patient with him. The reason why that's funny, because many of us sometimes think this view of God like he's ready to strike us down. God can handle our confusion. He can handle our disobedience at times. He knows his people. He didn't say, Peter, who are you talking to? <laughs> It just said he repeated again. Go, go, get, go get you some food, man. 
Believe me, you're going to like that shrimp now that you're allowed to eat the shrimp. <laughs> Believe me, kill and eat. But what Peter say, I haven't put anything impure in my body. Eating was a huge deal to them. It was a part of their identity. This wasn't something that they took lightly. So when Paul brings this up, he's bringing up an issue that he knows will cause significant conflict because people are going to care about this more than other people. And so he goes to a church. Now, remember, this is the church. It's in Rome. You have in the community of this church, you have Jewish people who think like Peter, I'm not eating anything unclean. And then you got Gentiles who eat everything unclean. They didn't eat pork. Gentiles coming in, licking their fingers off of eating ribs. <laughs> you got these combining people all there because they believe in Jesus, but different aspects of their identity come into play, things that they have conviction about. Just because God says you can eat anything doesn't mean you have to. You might be like, nah, I'm just going to, I'm going to stick to what I'm doing. And he brings this up as a serious issue that they shouldn't judge each other for thinking differently on. The other thing you have to understand is meal prep back then. They didn't have no microwave. They ain't had no DoorDash. They didn't even have HorseDash. They didn't have none of that. You weren't ordering food from nowhere. You didn't have enough food. So when a person did all the work it took all day to prepare a meal, and then you're going to come over and be like, oh, I can't eat this. What? What? You're not going to eat? My wife spent seven hours making this meal. This isn't us, like, throw them in the oven. It's out in an hour. You bake, you know. She throw a little sweat beads on like she'd been working all day. It took, she ordered the food, <laughs> set the table up. Now, this is people who spent all day preparing food, and now you come into their house, and you saying, oh, I can't eat that? I remember one time this family, some years ago, invited me over to their house for dinner. And this family, they asked my wife, are there things that he doesn't like to eat? And they said, she said, yeah, he hates tomatoes. Like, he can't eat. And I can eat tomato sauce. If it's really, really diced up in like a salad with a bunch of seasoning and stuff on it, I can eat the tomatoes too. But if you just give me a tomato, <laughs> nah, fam. So this family, we go over, food all over the table. We sit down to eat. And they had like, the, the food was covered because they didn't want it to get cold. So when I picked up my thing, it was a nice plate of rice with like 15 little tomatoes all on top of it. All on top of it. And so I looked at it. I looked at my wife. And they were like, are you guys ready to eat? And I said, yep. And then they busted out laughing. And they said, Kurt, we got, we just playing. We ain't going to give you that. They, just, they said, we know you don't like tomatoes, right? But here's what they didn't know that I knew. I was just going to move all of them to the side of the plate and still eat. I wasn't going to say nothing. I wasn't going to complain. But you was going to have a little mountain of tomatoes right here on the right side while I ate the rice. Because I respected the fact they invited us over for dinner and the meal prep that it took. And they was joking with me, but I was just going to slide it. I was going to dance. Slide to the right. Slide to the right. Them, that food was going to dun, dun. It was going right to the right. Wasn't eating them. This is an important circumstance in the time it was written. So the, here's the circumstance. One believes he may eat anything, while the one who is weak eats only vegetables. Here's the command. Here's how to apply this command in verse 3. Here's how to apply the command from verse 1 with this circumstance in verse 3. He says this, one who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does. Why? Because God has accepted them. There's two things to notice in this passage. The absence of the word strong. Notice he doesn't say that the one who is weak 
does one thing, and the one who is strong does the other thing. There's an absence of the word strong because that's not the dynamic that he's trying to create is that one is weak and one is strong. He doesn't draw attention to a fake dichotomy. You're not strong because you think you should only eat vegetables. He never offers the designation of one being strong and one being weak, but he only focuses on the fact that someone's weak in faith because they think you can only do this. But he doesn't say you're strong for thinking the opposite. That's intentional. It's intentional. And it's why Paul corrects both sides. Why are you correcting someone strong? No, he corrects both. He says the one who eats must not look down on the one who doesn't eat. So the one who feels like I can eat anything shouldn't look down, shouldn't self-righteously judge him. And the one who does not eat must not judge the one who does. You know why he says this? It's because the temptation is to think that the other person is weak if they don't have your conviction. So you both can be weak. You could be just as weak for judging someone that you think is weak. So Paul doesn't do it. And he's identifying a very serious problem. In verse 3, it says, don't look down on and don't judge. Well, why would you look down on and why would you judge? Because you think that person should think about it the way you do. And what you do is then you impose on their conscience. I'm going to impose on your conscience. You shouldn't eat vegetables only. You should only eat vegetables. You shouldn't go see this cartoon. You should think this way about this thing because you're not realizing what's at stake. You see, you impose on people's consciences about things that the Bible doesn't say are clearly designed for believers to agree on. That's why they're disputable matters. We're not talking about morality that's clear. We're talking about matters that are personal convictions or applications of the Bible. We impose on other people's consciences. This needs to be as important to you as it is to me. The gospel's at stake. Can I just say as your brother and pastor, the gospel is never at stake. Because Jesus was already hung on the stake. And he rose from the dead. The gospel's not at stake. <laughs> In Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, God says this, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where would you build a temple for me? Contrast that with take back the country for God. I repeat, the earth is my footstool. I don't want you to take back nothing for me on the bottom of my feet. At my old church, we used to sing, when things are over our head, they're under his feet. The gospel's not at stake. It's at stake to you. For me, I want a stake. <laughs> this is happening. This is an epidemic in the church. It's the imposition. You know, it's the neo-great commission. In the Bible, Matthew 28, the great commission is going to all the world and make disciples and baptize them. The new great commission is going to all the church and impose on their consciences, influence them to think what's important is what we think is important. This is what's happening. Impose on your conscience things that the Bible doesn't clearly say or make someone think, if you don't think this is as important as I do, then you're not seeing it clearly. No, maybe I just trust in the sovereignty of God more than you do. 
This is dangerous. Because if I impose on your conscience, I control the way you understand morality. If I impose on your conscience, then I control the way you understand good and evil. If I got you thinking, like, oh, my gosh, I got to do this. I got to this is really important. Then I'm controlling what you care about. I'm controlling your morality. If I can control, can control your morality, then I control your obedience. So now I can't go see this movie because of this. Now, if I don't, it's because I don't want to. But if I do, my faith is intact. I've seen a lot worse than two cartoon characters be, of the same sex kiss. Sorry. And many of the, you know what's wild to me? So when Disney came out with this agenda, right, the sexual agenda, I watched all these people on Twitter, particularly I'm in Twitter Baptist Church, Watch all these people. Get up, get end your Disney subscription. Don't do this and don't do that, right? Talking about popular dudes, popular pastors, particularly in the Southern Baptist Convention. Man, shortly after that, one of the dudes who was the most jawboning about this issue asked people to give money to his son, his son and their new wife's uh, wedding because they wanted to go. She wants to go to Disney World for the first time. This dude got so clowned on Twitter that he took it down. Last week in Anaheim, California, the Southern Baptist Convention was in Anaheim, California for their convention. I saw people with Mickey Mouse hats on pastors taking photos at Disneyland. But two months ago, you made it seem like you're not even a believer if you still have a subscription. And so I tweeted right after that, man, just watched... Uh, uh, what did we movie my son just watched? We had just watched uh, Moon Knight. I said, man, just watched Moon Knight. Loved it. Someone, is that on Disney? Yep. <laughs> These things are important to you, and that's fine. That's fine. Don't watch it if you don't want to watch it. That's fine. But don't impose on other people's consciences, making these bold statements like you're not a Christian if. What you mean I'm not a Christian if? Now we add into the gospel. Let me go to Romans 10.9. If we confess with our mouths and believe that he rose from the dead, then we are saved. And if we do not go to Disney. <laughs> don't get me wrong. There are matters of wisdom and folly, right? But like we're talking about, we're talking about salvation issues. You're trying to control people's morality because then you can control their obedience. And if you control people's obedience, then you conform them to your spirit and not the spirit. And this is what happens in the church. This is what happens in the church. Many interpersonal conflicts that happen between people, husbands, wives, children, friends, close people, they happen because at the root, they're offended that you don't think the way they think that you don't think this is serious as they do. We've seen this significantly over race and politics the last eight years. If you don't think racial justice and white privileges, then you're not a... If you don't think abortion and gun rights are... Then you're not a... Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Be passionate, but not all passion translates. I'm sorry, I don't think gun rights, Second Amendment rights is the heart of our nation. I just don't care. And if people get offended, then, then they get offended when you're not offended that they're offended. What Paul's warning against is, look, don't judge other people for not having the same conscience that you do on things the Bible is not specific about. If it's clearly in the Bible, then fine. But even then, it could be an application of the Bible. You've heard what I think about abortion. I know people say, hey, because do not murder. That's fine. But there's a ton of other murders that happen, too. I don't have to be so passionate about this that I... Okay. We judge people for not thinking that things are as important as we do. And Paul says, this is a serious issue. 
It's a serious issue. Here's the correction he brings in verse 4. Who are you to judge another household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls. And he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are you to judge another's household servant? This is direct. This is the scriptures. Please don't take my word for it. Go back, reread it in different translations. Look up whatever commentaries you want. Don't take my word for it. But you won't come to many different conclusions. You're judging people? And he says the Lord is able to make them stand. Here's something that we have to realize. And because we're not always eternally minded people, we don't think about eternity and heaven until we're closer to going there or until we think we're going to die soon. Most of us just kind of live our lives and are excited about what we see and we think that the best thing that we have is what our senses have revealed to us. We forget that the world that's coming after this is greater for us than this world. So many of us don't think about this even in terms of judgment. But here's the thing we have to understand. God, God knows what you are really for and against. He knows what you really care about and what you don't. When you vote a particular way, let's say, the Lord knows why you're voting that way and what's really in your heart. And when you stand before him, he's going to ask you, you're going to give an account for that truth. Not the truth that other people think. He knows all of us intimately. And he's going to evaluate us based on what he knows we really felt and knew. Not what other people think about who you voted for, or what movie you saw, or what you supported, or this and that, or, or what conviction, or how important did you think this was versus that. The Lord will make us stand because he knows who we are. That's an applause from the spirit by the children. This is what <laughs> So after that correction, he gives us another circumstance. Verse 5 and 6, he says this. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. Another circumstance, Sabbath days are no small matter among Christians. There are denominations now that still think that you have to observe the Sabbath and the food laws on Saturdays. And if you don't, you're not a true Christian. So they would say, because we gather on Sundays, we're not really a Christian because we're not keeping the Sabbath. This is an important issue. In the history of the church, many Christians have fought over what do we do here? The Sabbath says it lasts forever. Jesus kind of said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He seemed to imply that when you have faith in him, that, the, that, that, that man was made for the Sabbath, not the other way around. Well, the Sabbath was made for man. It's like, uh, Jesus makes it seem like if we have faith in him and he's the Sabbath, then we're resting in the Sabbath. The Sabbath went from a day to a person. But there are some people who think you're not. I mean, there's churches in this area who be like, you guys are not real Christians because you gather on Sunday. Okay. I'm not offended by that. All right, well, I'll see you next Sunday. <laughs> Here's the main point that he says here. He says this in verse 5. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. These are personal convictions. You just need to be fully convinced in your mind. You don't need to be fully convinced in my mind. You need to be fully convinced in your mind. The things that I say and do, if I feel like, okay, I feel like I'm, I'm good with this. This is my position. You may disagree. You may not like it. Okay. I'm okay with that. This is happening a ton in the church. If you disagree, then you get insulted. You get insulted. I'm just from a different era. Okay. 
First of all, this is on Twitter. Like, here's where I'm at on church. Travel to my church and let's have a face-to-face. This is Twitter. You have an avatar. I have no idea if you're even a real person. You could be a bot, that's all I know. People have to be fully convinced in their own minds about these convictions that you have of matters that are not clearly specified in the Bible. And you have to remember that the Lord, the Lord sees an oath and he'll cause you to stand. Even when a ton of other people will judge you because you don't have the same conviction that they do. It's biblical to not care when people try to impose on your conscience. That's not arrogance. You're not a narcissist. You're just, I may just trust the Lord differently than you. Because to be honest, I don't see any verses that tell me that the comforts that I've become accustomed to was supposed to remain until I get to heaven. What I do see, though, is indeed all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. What I do see is when you experience trials of various kinds, count it joy because the Lord is working something out in you. What I do see is in all the le- in most of the letters and revelations, I'm saying he who conquers to the end, he who endures to the end. You don't have to endure or conquer anything that's easy. What I think is happening is we're afraid of losing the comforts that we have because we don't want to suffer. And I've accepted suffering as the way of the cross. So there are going to be things that are not as important to me as it is to someone else. I'm not judging you for them, but I'm definitely not letting you judge me for them. And people get offended. They'll insult you. Cool. I grew up joning. <laughs> for those of you that don't know what that means, that's when you just be with a bunch of people and be like, man, your mother's so fat. I grew up doing that my whole life. I'm, I'm built for it. I just don't do it because the Lord <laughs> won't allow me to press send. <laughs> There are times, though, I'm like, man. So when you see me say, thanks for the convo, that's my way of saying, stop talking, fam. Stop talking. <laughs> I'm trying to be gracious. Stop, because I, I, I know what you said last week. I can scroll. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> These are disputable matters that the Lord says, give thanks to me. These are your convictions. And do them to the glory of God. But don't impose them on others. Again, not clearly defined biblical truths, but things that you're applying scripture a particular way. Believers will do some things differently that may dishonor you, but they may be honoring to the Lord. They may dishonor you. They may dishonor me. I may not like them. Doesn't mean it's sinful, though. And that's the danger. When I impose on your conscience and I essentially make something sinful that the Bible doesn't, I could be wrong, but I feel like that's what Jesus crushed the Pharisees for. He said, woe to you, Pharisees. Paraphrasing, for you treat man-made traditions as equivalent to what God's word says. You've made these little things, that you, these little applications of Scripture like the Mishnah on the same par as the law of Moses. And then you're hypocrites because you don't even do what you're telling other people to do. Right. When I watched all these people at, <laughs> at Disneyland smiling like, wasn't you just two months ago <laughs> saying? Now you up there with pictures. With, shoot, Chuck E. Cheese was up there. He's not even supposed to be at Disneyland. <laughs> you taking pictures with all these people. Acting like you didn't just say, if you support these people, you're not even a true believer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Lord is something else. And if you pay attention, he's just exposing all this stuff. And you realize, you know what, Lord, I just got to trust you. I really can't trust these folks or these folks. I just got to trust you and the people that I know that I can trust. Because it is a wild time right now to profess to believe in Jesus. He concludes with a correction, a general correction for all of this. He says this, beginning in verse 7, For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. For if we live for the Lord, then if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, we, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, 
Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I think verse 9 is mind-blowing in the midst of the whole argument. It's sort of the, the, the reality, like verse 9, he says, Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. So Christ died so that he could be Lord over the dead and the living, which means Christ died so that he could impose on our consciences, so that he could determine how we live. Notice the contrast of the way the word judge is being used. But why do you judge your brother or sister? For we will all stand on the judgment seat of God. So you judge your brother or sister, but we're all going to stand on the judgment seat of God. He's contrasting the two judges. You versus God. You judge your brother or sister, but you're going to be judged by God for judging your brother and sister. He says, every knee will bow to me by implication, not to you. Every knee will bow because of me by implication, not because of you. Jesus is allowed to impose on our consciences. We are not. This doesn't mean you can't have your personal convictions. It doesn't mean you can't share them. But you have to make sure that if you're trying to convince someone, and it's not just something trivial like the difference between meat and vegetables, if it's something of significant importance, and, and, and the phrase, you're not a Christian if, rises up, be afraid of that phrase because you are in danger of endangering yourself because Jesus said, woe to the one who causes one of these little ones to sin. We can impose on people's consciences and cause them to sin. And you see this happening all over the place. Offended, insulting. Remember, remember when Jesus said, whoever says to you, you fool is liable to go to hell. Whoever calls his brother a fool, I see more worse than that every day on pastors with big platforms. Be careful. Be careful, church. It's okay to have personal convictions. I have them. It's things I agree with, I like, don't like, things I'm not going to do that others do. There might be things I think, man, this is unwise for you to do that. Okay? We have to be careful when we start imposing. Now, you may not do this, but identify this when you see it. Make sure you pay attention when you see it so you know, oh, okay, that's what this is. There are times I'm just like, hey, so what verse in the Bible are you getting this from? I'll just ask that question. What verse do you feel like this is coming from? What verse are you coming from when you say you're not a... Because these are discipleship issues, a lot of them. I'll close with this. I heard a pastor, I saw a pastor, a guy I know, he put on Facebook a month ago, you're not a Christian if you do not think life begins at conception. So he said, you're not a Christian if you, if you think life doesn't begin at conception. Oh, okay. So I replied back to him, I said, hey, bro, you got to be careful with these type of statements, man. These are discipleship issues. So what if someone gets saved? comes to your church they may have had a couple of abortions and been okay with it they just become a Christian their views haven't been fully formed that they're still growing and all of that right mm -hmm. they're new to your church been a Christian three months genuinely saved but still wrestling through different issues young in the faith weak in faith and they get up and their pastor says you're not a Christian if you don't agree that life begins at conception and now they're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm, oh, no. You might have just lost them. 
they might leave thinking, well, I guess I'm not a Christian because I'm still working through that. This is serious. This happens a lot. We have to be very careful as leaders, as fellow Christians. Now, this does not say anything goes. We're talking about matters that are not clearly laid out in Scripture. These are personal conscience issues. You can have them, but you better be careful if you try to impose them because you will stand before the judgment seat of God. And he will not like it. Me personally, this is the verses that I apply. I've had to work through this because I've sort of been a quasi-public figure for a long time. So these are the verse, this is the verse, this passage in 1 Corinthians 4. This is just what guides my thinking in a lot of this stuff. Paul says this to the Corinth church. He says, look, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. So he says, look, I'm not walking around judging, being judged by you. I'm not judging myself. That doesn't mean I haven't done anything wrong. He just says, I'm just not, I'm not justified by this. But then he says, it is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. This is how I move. I'm just like, all right, Lord. You say one thing about race, you're woke. Okay? You're asleep. I just, I just I don't even know what that means anymore. It's like the Lord, when I stand before the Lord, he knows how to judge. He knows the intentions of my heart, and he'll give his rewards where he sees fit. That's our reality. So our goal in this life is that we got to welcome people who have different convictions. Some of those convictions may be really wrong convictions, but through relationship, we work, we disciple, we grow. I was a different Christian 10 years ago than I am now. We grow, we learn. Some things that we thought, man, I really believe this, and you're like, I don't think I agree with that anymore. There are different ways that God brings us to certain places, and we get it. There's, and also, there's multitudes of maturity in this room, in your church, in your D group. There are going to be different people with different convictions to pursue the Lord. We got to be patient. We welcome people in. Don't impose consciences, but we try to disciple as the scripture commands us to. But what we don't do is impose and judge people's on people's conscience. Because Jesus died for them, not us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I just thank you that your word, oftentimes, it, it's so clear that you know humanity. There are times I read your world and I'm astounded at how accurate and applicable it is for either my life personally or what I see happening more broadly. I mean, Lord, you know better than I do. From my vantage point, I feel like this is an epidemic in the church. I know I've been guilty of it. I'm sure many others have in this room. It's easy for us to think that what we think is really important, timely, concerning, we think everyone else should feel that way. This is why there's so many blogs and so many YouTubers and so much, because we all have perspective and things that we think are so important that we want other people to like, subscribe, and agree with what we think. And sometimes we impose on people's consciences because it matters to us. Well, Father, I pray that by your grace and through your spirit that you would help us focus on what matters to you. And that, Lord, you do not say that we can't have personal convictions or care about things. 
Some people may think this way about this movie or that movie or this and that. And if it's not clearly there, Lord, you allow us, you give us the grace. You accepted us as weak in faith. May we accept others. Because weak in faith doesn't mean we're strong. Because if we're judging or imposing, we're just as or weaker than the person that we're doing it to. So, Lord, I just pray that this would help all of us as we interact with one another, with the broader culture. This is the strategy of the enemy. This is all we see is accusation, insult, demand, fear, all these things. And, Lord, just help us to just say, you know what? Even if this is important, heaven is his throne and the earth is your footstool. It is not immature to have a trust in your sovereignty that's so tangible that we're not anxious or overwhelmed at what's happening in the world. And may no one shame us for not being overly anxious or worried about every political item in the world. Some of us, by your grace, we just trust you, Lord. And we know that no matter what we have to suffer and go through, that it'll all be worth it when we're standing before you and we get to see you, Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins. And we get to be around other believers that we knew in this life, some that are there now waiting for us, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to all have that kind of, that kind of perspective. That doesn't lower our biblical convictions, but it, does, but it allows us to not impose extra biblical convictions on other people for your glory and our good. In your amazing name we pray, Jesus, amen.